Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Vicki Baker about her new book, Charting Your Path to Full, a guide for women associate professors. Vicki, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much, Dana, for having me. I appreciate it. We're, we're thrilled you're here. Um, Vicki, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, I am an academic uh, who just recently had my third book come out that was really inspired by my own professional and personal journey to get to this point. So I'm a professor of economics and management at Albion College, which is a liberal arts college in Michigan, and I'm in my 14th years of faculty member there. I also teach for Penn State's world campus. So prior to joining Albion, I was at Penn State University completing my doctorate there as well as uh, my second master's degree. And that's really where I got the love of undergraduate teaching and business. Uh, Funny story, my entire family is in education. My mom was a kindergarten teacher for 35 years. My dad was a teacher. My mom's aunt or my mom's sister and her brother, my aunt and uncle were both educators and administrators. And my grandfather was the superintendent of the school district that I attended. So I vowed I would never go into education. I wanted nothing to do with it. I had been surrounded. I had no interest. I definitely grew up with an appreciation for education and education educators and the impact that they have on the lives of the individuals that they worked with. So I always grew up with an appreciation and respect for that, but I just vowed that wouldn't be my career path. And so my undergrad degree is actually in safety sciences and engineering accredited field with minors in Spanish and applied statistics. And right out of undergrad, I took a position at AK Steel Corporation um, as a safety engineer in Ashland, Kentucky, and then moved to Middletown, Ohio, um, to their corporate headquarters to do um, contractor training and development. And it was during that time that I realized I didn't want to be a 55-year-old woman wearing steel toe boots and a hard hat to work every day. Um, and so I thought, mm, maybe I'll go back to graduate school. And I went to get my MBA. And my concentration was in management and org behavior. I really was interested in understanding what motivates people, how people learn, how to provide them with the appropriate supports and development so that they could succeed in their careers and excel in their careers. And so I really had an interest in those aspects of just understanding humans and and human interaction and the training and development and HR side of things. And then from there, I actually took a position at Harvard Business School in executive education, where I first worked as an administrator directly with the director of executive education the first year and a half I was there. And then the second year and a half, I moved over to um, a portfolio of open enrollment programs. And my programs were specifically in the areas of management and marketing and leadership. And this is a gross oversimplification, but I remember sitting in in these executive trainings. And obviously, you see these amazing faculty members from Harvard Business School coming in and I felt like, man, they just get to waltz in this room and deliver this amazing content. They leave and it's those of us behind the scenes that make this look like a seamless operation, right? From all the planning, the execution, execution, the logistics, building those relationships with the participants before they even step foot on campus. And I just remember thinking, man, I think I like your side of the table better than my side of the table at this point. 
And I was working on a second master's degree at the time in, at Harvard. And it was actually a faculty member there that said, why are you doing the second master's degree? You really should go get your PhD. And I wanted to get it in higher education administration, but I thought it, I would not be um, perceived as a, as a viable candidate with a background in engineering and business. I had no prior educational or professional academic experience in education or higher ed beyond um, being an executive ed at Harvard. But that faculty member said, I think you would be surprised. Go ahead and apply. And uh, this faculty member said, look at either U of M or Penn State um, as the top programs at the time to be pursuing. And I'm originally from Pennsylvania. So I thought, great, I'll apply. And if I get in, great. If I don't, I'll just stay here and keep working. I enjoyed it and finished this master's degree. And I ended up getting in and my assistantship, probably not coincidentally, was on an engineering accreditation learning outcomes project. So clearly the background in engineering did come into play. And it was at the end of my first year at Penn State that I got an email from the chair of the management and org department who somehow got a handle of my resume and said, um, so rumor has it you have your MBA and rumor has it that you worked in executive education at Harvard Business School. Is that true? And I said, yep. And he said, how would you like to teach undergrad management? And this was two weeks before the semester started and there was no syllabus and no book. And I had no prior teaching experience. And his mentorship to me was get fives and above on your SRTE, which is the course evaluation on a scale from one to seven. And he goes, and I don't need to have a conversation with you. Are you good? Because I'm good. And that was pretty much it. So um, that was my entree into undergrad teaching of business. And that first semester was quite the experience, especially uh, with 450 students in an amphitheater style classroom with a headset. And again, I was basically one chapter ahead of them because we had no book or syllabus I could work from. And that's really where my love of undergrad teaching business came into play. And my focus has always been on kind of management and human resources and understanding human behavior and how to motivate people and how people learn and how we can better support them. So even though I swore off I would never end up in education, here I am 14 years into being a professor of undergraduate business and in higher education. So, you know, I guess it kind of comes full circle at some point. It usually does. It usually does. Um, so I wonder if you would talk to us a little bit about um, what inspired you to write uh, Charting Your Path to Full. Absolutely. So uh, those of us who are in the academy and particularly those of us who have uh, terminal degrees, EDD, PhD, uh, DBD, whatever, you kind of realize coming out, especially if you're coming from a research institution and accepting a faculty position in an institution other than a research institution, you realize very quickly that your training was not um, comprehensive, right? So I knew coming out of Penn State, I was a solid scholar. But other than my teaching in SMEAL, which was great at Penn State, but most of my peers did not have any teaching experience because we just, in, in higher ed fields, you don't have undergrad classes in higher education. And so it really became critical for me once I got to Albion to start figuring out the socialization and how do I understand how to engage with students in this institutional environment. So if you look at my scholarly trajectory, you would notice that as a PhD student, I studied doctoral students trying to understand how they developed a professional identity, 
then as an early career faculty member in a liberal arts college who was in an institution type that was not like the institution type I was trained in and trying to figure out what does mentoring mean in this context? What do I need to do to manage both a teaching agenda and a scholarly agenda? And how do I develop in both of those areas while meeting the the needs and expectations of being a faculty member. I mean, I was attending admissions events and being invited to um, institutional advancement meetings with donors to try to help secure external funding those ways, all things that you're just not trained in. And then, so it really became imperative for me to kind of pull my knowledge from the higher ed world, as well as strategies and resources from human resources and org behavior to really think about how do I advance in my career and to do it in a way that I find personally and professionally meaningful. And I'm assuming that if I'm having these questions and trying to figure out how to do this, there are other people who are asking those same questions and trying to find those same support. So, you know, then once I hit mid-career and got to full professorship, it was kind of depressing to think, man, you know, I've hit it the, the peak, right? And in, in the academy, seek full professorship for those of us who have an interest in that. Not everybody does. And that's a, a personal and professional choice that have very valid reasons to, to either pursue it or not. And, you know, you still have 20 plus years left on your career runway. And I'm like, man, that's depressing to think about. I got to dial it in for the next 20 to 25 years. What is there to achieve? And again, assuming that I wasn't the only person experiencing that. And as I progressed in my career, so too did the opportunities for for me to really bridge that scholarly practice component. I've never wanted to be a scholar who just produces scholarship for scholarship's sake. I really want it to be a benefit to the intended audiences and populations that I'm seeking to support. So again, as a a woman academic who was a mother with two young children at the time, seeking to advance in her career at an institution type that was not like the type I had earned my doctoral degree from, nor did I have the appropriate training, and in an institution that was doing the best that it could, but there are very limited resources beyond early career. And so I was able to do some research and scholarship and to secure some external grant funds to develop what, you know, originally this academic leadership institute that I I worked on with two other colleagues for for mid-career faculty in the GLCA, which is the Great Lakes Colleges Association. It's the consortium of which Albion College is a member. And it was really through that work where I started to build these relationships and see this deep need, not just at liberal arts colleges, but really in higher ed in general. And through that work, I ended up getting invitations to do workshops at other institutions, ranging from comprehensives to research universities to liberal arts colleges. But two um, colleagues in that original Academic Leadership Institute are faculty members at the College of Worcester. And their leadership development plan as part of that Academic Leadership Institute was to try to create something similar for the purposes of the College of Worcester. And as part of their proposal, they built in funding to bring me on site to work with the women that were part of this group. So they were able to secure that funding. And so they brought me to campus for two and a half days. And it was during that time that, man, I was just profoundly inspired by these women. We had large group sessions, small group sessions. I was doing one-on-one coaching with these women. We went out to dinner, had meals. I have stayed in touch with many of these women. And it was the end of that time that I emailed my editor at Rutgers. And I said, look, I think there's something here. These women have inspired me. This is the work that we're doing. And I'm sure there's a way that I can codify 
the types of supports and workshop and resources and tools that, again, have a really interdisciplinary grounding from higher education, but also drawing on some of those best HR practices from human resources and org behavior. So I really have to give credit to these amazing mid-career women from the College of Worcester who brought me on, and it was my time with them that really inspired it. And in fact, I, I give a shout out to to the women who invited me and to that group in general in the acknowledgments because it was really a, a profoundly fulfilling inspiring experience. And I just realized I've got to be able to take this and put it in writing in an accessible way that can provide the support to women across the academy. Hmm. Okay. So um, thank you for that kind of like context for the book. Um, now, I, I, for the, for some of the listeners that they haven't read the book, um, and, and I'm hoping that they will, um, and I'm sure you get this question all the time. Like you're like, oh, I just did a book, and people are like, oh, what's it about? Can you give us sort of that elevator pitch synopsis of of the book? Absolutely. So this book really is trying to help women. It's targeted for women academics. Again, a lot of the research and practice is rooted in what we know uh, women's experiences are in the academy. But what I really wanted to do is take the lessons that I have learned to help advance in my career and to codify them and put them in a resource that other people could take and they could act on. So it's informed by research and practice, but it really lays out specific how-tos to be much more strategic and deliberate about determining your goals in your career, being clear about what those goals are, creating an inventory about how to get there, and uh, providing the supports to to really create this narrative and story that helps illustrate who you are as both a person and as a professional and as and in articulating kind of what your value add is to your institution, to your discipline and to the academy. So it's really just it's a culmination of research and practice that really provides a step by step guide and strategy behind advancing in your career, regardless of what your advancement goals are. Obviously, it's situated in the context of advancing to full professorship. But there are many women academics who don't aspire to that for a variety of reasons. And even if that's not your goal, this book is useful in helping you to think thoughtfully about what your career goals are with the assumption that even if you don't want to advance to full, you still would like to be an engaged professional and continually learning and developing. And this book can also help you think through what that looks like for you in the short and the long term. Great. Yeah. One of the, one of the first things that struck me about the book is that, um, is the versatility of it that though I know you wrote it for women associate professors, it really offers so much for any professional, um, in academia at any career level, no matter their specific position. Um, that said, I found it, you know, very insightful for my own professional situation. So like you said, I think it can help you really, um, think through those short and long-term goals, um, and how you get there and how you kind of create there's lots of tools for creating that narrative. Um, so there's, was that was that sort of part of your intention with the book that even though it's geared towards women associate professors, that there would be a, a versatility um, aspect to it, to to the possible uses for it. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I first launched into this scholarly agenda, I I incorrectly assumed that everybody would want to advance to full. So I've, I've got to own that right now. That I absolutely incorrectly assumed that that's that was everybody's goal, right? Because that was mine. And in the process of doing the research that that informed that, right, I, the previous two books um, 
really were longitudinal research studies that kind of led to this third book. And in the process of doing focus groups and interviews with faculty, I encountered many faculty, men and women, who were like, I don't have an aspiration to advance to full, but I do have aspirations of being engaged in my career and feeling fulfilled, right? And I, so that was a really important wake up call that, again, at the time, sort of embarrassing to admit that I made that incorrect assumption. But stepping back, realizing, yeah, because even though I'm full professor, again, I've got 20 plus years left on my career runway, I certainly have aspirations of feeling fulfilled and engaged at work and thinking through thoughtfully about what are next steps and what do I want my contribution to be and, and who do I need to support along the process. And so I really wrote this book that it could be picked up and used to support a variety of careers, a variety of career stages. Again, it's really targeted to mid-career, but certainly the tools and the resources would be useful for somebody pulling a dossier together for interim review or promotion and tenure, or if they have aspirations for administration and they're looking five years down the road to start pursuing that, now's a good time to pick up the book and start thinking about doing that SWOT analysis or thinking about what is my career trajectory and what are my goals and what does my developmental network look like and what are my strengths and weaknesses and where are there opportunities for growth. So again, it was focused on women academics and this is me pulling together research practice and the tools that I employ to help advance in my career but also trying to be thoughtful in acknowledging that not everybody has aspirations of advancing along the traditional trajectory in the academy. And how can I provide a resource and tools and guidance to those individuals that one validates their goals that this it's okay to not want to advance to full. And there's a variety of reasons for that that are valid, but to validate their aspirations and that gives them also opportunities regardless of career stage and regardless of professional and personal aspirations that they too need a resource that will help them think thoughtfully about next steps in the short term and long term. Well, I think you accomplished that because I know that's definitely something that I that I took away from the book. Um, throughout the book, you and your co-authors highlight the reality of gender bias, both in general and in the academy specifically. Why was that an important part of the story for you? Well, look, we don't have to look any further than that op-ed that just came out in the Wall Street Journal uh, about Dr. Jill Biden. So it's just, it's an ugly reality. And anyone who pretends that that's not the case is just grossly misinformed. Um, Have we made strides? Absolutely. But when you look at women's advancement um, and attainment at the baccalaureate level and even in professional and graduate schools, and yet as we move along the trajectory, you see far more women at the assistant professor level compared to associate and certainly at the full. You see more women, um, particularly women of color, at the adjunct or visiting non-full-time, non-tenure track positions. And, you know, there's just challenges with women in the classroom and and perceptions and biases against how we're expected to behave and, and not expected to behave. And, and again, it's unfortunate timing with that op-ed that just came out that just further illustrates the importance of there are differences and women need support, women of color need support, um, and we need to be thoughtful about recognizing those inherent biases and structural deficiencies and coming from a deficit model right out of the gate and trying to help draw attention to and an awareness of these issues and then also offering supports for 
for women specifically of how to overcome them because, right, we see change is glacial in higher education unless we're really interested in making the change. COVID certainly showed us, right, that we can change on a dime in higher ed if we need to. We can change <laughs> delivery methods. We can do all kinds of things. So it makes no sense to me now that if we can produce and, and pivot so quickly in terms of delivery methods, pedagogy, ways of interacting with students, uh, so, uh, offering student support services, that we fail to to move at that pace when it comes to looking at the inherent systemic biases that exist in the academy. And notwithstanding those moving, women need resources to help combat that and or at least counter it as they're working to advance in their careers. And that's really what you know, this book focuses on. So it's a, we're not going to be naive and pretend that it doesn't exist. It absolutely exists. And is it always fair? No. And is it appropriate? No. And do we need to make change? Sure. But this book focuses predominantly on, we need to focus on and control the things that we can control. And that is absolutely being organized about how we pursue our career advancement opportunities, how thoughtful we are in identifying what those goals are long-term and short-term, and how we go about crafting that compelling persuasive narrative that helps our peers of educated yet uninformed people who read our dossiers and make these decisions for us to help try our best to minimize as much as possible the opportunities for others to craft our narrative for us. It's like I do a lot of one-on-one academic coaching with women who are seeking to advance in their careers, who many of them have read the book and are like, would you work with me individually so I can really get some guidance and others who haven't read the book yet, but are reaching out uh, based off of recommendations. And I always say the ultimate goal is that you have to control your narrative because if we let others make assumptions about the narrative, that those assumptions will not be in our favor. Right. So we have to take control of the things that we can can control. And this book really tries to help provide that framework and guidance to take control of the aspects we have control over so that we're as thoughtful, strategic, deliberate and focused as possible. I'm thinking there like there's like three questions that I want to <laughs> that that spurred that. Sorry. So my pause. Um I think I'm going to go to the one of the through lines that spoke to me as I was as I was reading was this idea of um, flipping the script on mid-career, right? And so kind of a similar idea of like taking control of your narrative, taking control of mid-career. You're clear to note the ways in which mid-career has been framed in the literature, um, you know, very negatively as ill-defined, kind of like the mid-career malaise. And But you're offering another way to see mid-career as, um, as an opportunity to redefine and refocus our efforts. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, make no mistake, the mid-career stage is challenging, right? Because because it is ill-defined and there's no real key visible markers, right? Maybe it is full professorship, but there's nothing in between there, right? So as academics and you yourself know, right, you knew what the targets were, you knew the milestones you had to achieve as a grad student. And then if you enter the academy and are on the tenure track, you know the milestones that you have to achieve to get from associate to tenured, uh, from assistant to tenured associate. And then kind of once you hit that marker, we in higher ed just make this assumption of good, you've, you've arrived, you know what you're doing, you no longer need support, now you're in the role of supporting other people. And that's not an appropriate <laughs> assumption to make. And so people can flounder. And 
And it's just challenging now because there's exhaustion. There's questions about, do I even want to advance to full? Like I've already put myself and potentially family and loved ones through the ringer and have asked them to be over the top understanding with my need to continually be grinding it out to get to this point. But I also see this as an opportunity to reevaluate priorities and personal and professional goals and to really now at least you have uh, one thing that promotion and tenure certainly affords those of us and it's a privilege in the academy. So I want to acknowledge that, that you do have the safety of job security, right? I've got tenure. So short of something catastrophic happening, my job is secure. And so now I'm afforded some flexibility and some autonomy to rewrite what this next stage looks like. So is this now the time to be taking some risks and exploring this new career path that is different from the one that was described in your dossier when you went up for tenure and promotion? Is it now exploring an interdisciplinary um course that you had an interest in teaching? Is it something about community engagement? Is it, is it a new scholarly agenda, something with teaching, something community engagement? So while the, the lack of clearly defined markers and well laid out faculty development that addresses career stage and within career stage, those disciplinary norms and nuances to make sure that it's as, as targeted to you as possible, lacking those things, I still see this as an opportunity to kind of rewrite what that next stage looks like. So I really wanted to highlight that point in the book that while we don't want to be naive and again, pretend that this stage doesn't come with challenges, let's turn those challenges into opportunities to now benefit from the privilege that we are afforded as tenured and promoted faculty members in the academy and to think about what does this next phase look like and how can I ensure that that next phase is really rooted in what I'm passionate about and where I find joy. I mean, I talk about it a lot in the book at, the, at that point, right? When I, when I really kind of hit that turning point, I had a, a, a daughter at home who was 14 months and was pregnant with my son. They're 19 months apart and I was still grinding it out and feeling like I was just on that I saw no off ramp. I just felt like I had to continually keep pumping out the work in order to ensure that I would hit full professorship. But then once I really was forced, right, with kids, like you can't, mommy has to work and especially an infant and a a toddler, right? There's no peace. We were talking about this before we started recording this, (laughs) you know, there's no peace, let alone time to really sit and be reflective. And, and I really had to be thoughtful and more strategic about if I was going to pursue a project, that project really had to be a damn good project in order for it to take time away from my kids. And for me to even justify to myself, it was worth the time and energy and emotional um, energy that I was going to put into it. So certainly tenure helped with that. Certainly motherhood helped with that. It forced me to do that. But again, I know that there are women academics who maybe aren't mothers, but they have those types of um, responsibilities at home or the different identities or different areas of their life that are very worthy of their time and not giving short shrift to those other areas that are important. So, you know, I just think we all have those moments in our lives where we're trying to figure out, is this worth it? And, you know, my new litmus test. And again, this comes with being in my forties and two kids and and a full professor, but I joke now and say, man, will I be on my deathbed? Like, man, I really should have attended that additional zoom meeting today. (laughs) And if the answer is no, then I'm okay walking away from it. But is it, man, I really should have sat down and done that with my child, or I could have bypassed that meeting to, to 
volunteer at my kid's school to be the classroom reader for the day. And, and that's certainly also what kind of motivated this book to, to maybe give permission to others, even though we don't need it, but we as women sometimes feel like we do to give people permission to recalibrate and focus on what we're passionate about and where our joy is, because I can assure you if that's where you're spending your time, the the value add will be clearly visible and the productivity will be exponential. Yes. Yes. And I, I definitely, um, joy is definitely a part of, uh, is another theme that just resonates throughout the book. So you, you talked about it, um, just now really, really well interweaving that in. And I think that's, that's just another, um, through line of the book, that idea of joy as the driver of your decisions. Um, and, and I really liked your focus, like, cause I, I saw that as, um, you kind of, you talk about it both at the macro and the micro levels. And I think on the, this focus you have on the individualized visions of joy in our own careers, and then from there connecting the dots so that you're framing your narrative, um, as your career trajectory versus a check the box mentality. Um, I really liked those connections because again, joy really was that through line. Um, but, but also the other main theme of the book is, is really owning your, owning your narrative and, and you provide all those tools to do that. Um, how did you get to that place um, for yourself of, of connecting those dots and and really um, being impassioned on this like individualized vision of joy? It, it really came with, and, and I've alluded to this uh, earlier, it's when I hit full professorship, right? So I was definitely that person who's motivated by those milestones and targets. So it was get your PhD, then get the tenure track faculty position, then earn tenure and promotion and now get full professor. And then I hit that and there was kind of a moment of a oof, letdown, which happens a lot in higher ed. I have lamented many times with colleagues of we don't sit back and bask in the, oh, I just got that published, right? Like, oh, my book came out. Now it's what are the next steps and what are the other projects you've got going? And and if you don't have anything in the pipeline, oh my gosh, you're behind already, right? Like we don't ever <laughs> take much time to really enjoy and appreciate and and elevate the work of other people and our own in that. And so once I hit full professor and there was really nothing else to strive for, right? Not not the traditional striving of, of what I had worked to to that point. It really causes you to engage in a deep personal self-reflection. And again, I shared some unflattering motherhood stories um, related to my kids. And I was like, ugh, you know, this is their perception. It's not a great perception. And now I have achieved what I want. How do I keep justifying for my to my family that you have to keep tolerating this because this is what I'm advancing towards if I couldn't even show how passionate I was about advancing towards that, right? Like, how do you come home and, and talk to your family? Like, I need you to help cover childcare because I really am engaged in this work, but you don't look excited to be engaged in that work <laughs> either, right? Like, um, and, and so that's telling. You know, it's one yeah. thing for me to sit down with my husband and say, I really need you to come home because I've got this really important meeting and this is why it's important to me. And this and and he gets it right. And so those conversations mm -hmm. are, are an easier sell or and so it, getting full really caused me to have to think thoughtfully about what is this next phase of my career? I work with other academics and help them think about it. And good Lord, I haven't done that for myself in a long time. And it's time. It's time to sit mm -hmm. down and if, if I were to reflect on my career to date, what do I think that looks like? How do I think other people would view it in the field? What has my contribution to the field been? And 
bigger picture, what do I want that contribution to be? So what really, what do I find joy in? And it really is helping other people advance in their careers and to, to pursue their passions. And that's where I was like, I really, that's kind of the next step for me. I, I really want to be doing that. And in the process, I'm doing it for myself. I mean, those women at Worcester provided just as much support for me professionally and personally as I hope I did for them. I mean, I left Mm -hmm. there just inspired by these women and thrilled that I am in a position and pursue research and practice that even affords me the opportunity to be engaging with people like that. And, but it really was hitting full professorship and having to really sit down and do that deep work and self-reflection of what's working and what's not working and what are maybe your not so um, fabulous points and how do we, how do we write that ship again? How do I want my kids to describe me? And it wasn't someone who was in a room with the door shut all the time working on her computer. And how do I want my students to view me and my accessibility? And how do I want my peers to view me and my work. And when you really start thinking about that, then you realize I have control of what that looks like and how my, my kids view me and how my students view me and how my peers view me and, and the ways in which I can contribute in all of those areas. And then it becomes, it became, you know, a, a path for me to start thinking, okay, let's look at all those key areas and start mapping out some short-term and long-term goals to to be moving in the direction that I would like to be. So it really was a, my own personal kind of aha moment that wasn't always the kindest <laughs> to be looking at at the time. I think a lot of our aha moments aren't always the kindest. Um So the book is um, full of tools to help women to understand, own, and articulate what their joy is. So that theme again, and and using that as a jumping off point for their professional narratives, future projects, and next steps. In chapter three specifically, you share um, examples of ways to craft narratives related to promotion criteria. Yet before you dive into those examples, you encourage the reader not to compare themselves to the examples shared. I'd like to read that. It's a paragraph, so it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I'd like to read it um, here because I think it's really important for us as women. And then I would like you to maybe just speak to why you felt the need to include that. Um, and and because I think it speaks to a, um, what many women tend to do. So, so you say... I must, and this is from page 74, you say, I must stress that the goal in sharing the examples throughout this chapter, the goal is to provide you with a diversity of ways in which to organize your materials. This is not meant to set some artificial standard of productivity that becomes demoralizing for you if you do not have the same number of publications or teaching performance as the women whose examples are offered here. Do not compare yourself to others and use that comparison as a reason not to pursue your career goals. Focus on your strengths and performance as the only metrics that matter. Yeah. So if you would, Vicki, kind of talk to us about that, about why you included that, about why that was important. Because we are our own worst enemy, right? Um, Like, I'll give you an example, and it happens at a young age, right? So I have a daughter who's in second grade, and my son is in kindergarten, and they're online learning, and they have to do their online assessments, right? So my daughter has an online assessment, and she does, both of my kids do really well at school. I'm very fortunate, but she has her assessment. She's nervous. 
self-deprecating, right? I'm not going to do well. I was like, just relax. You're going to be fine. She goes in and gets a hundred, but she was self-deprecating leading into it. My son had a um, sight words assessment with his teacher one-on-one. And before he goes in, I was like, Hey, good luck, buddy. You're going to be great. And he goes, I know this is going to be a piece of cake. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, appreciate your confidence, man. Right? Like he's going into it feeling good. And I'm like, ah, like how can I get my daughter to feel that level of confidence? And so in writing this, and, and I have to owe it to a colleague, I had each of these chapters friendly reviewed by colleagues in the field who do work. Uh, her name's Margaret Salee. You might even know her work. She does a lot of uh, gender-focused research. And she was like, you know, Vicki, this is really good. And I shared my highlights. And she goes, man, you're super productive. Hopefully this doesn't cause people to feel less than or to that, that it would be demotivating. And number one, I so appreciated her willingness to offer that honest feedback. And man, was she on point, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's something that we do regularly. And so I really took that feedback to heart while also absolutely seeing it in every day, not just in the academy, but with my own children, right? But, but we literally, I just uh, two weeks ago now for ASH, the Association for the Study of Higher Ed, and one of their councils, the uh, KHEP, the Council for the Advancement of Higher Ed Programs. I had just done a mid-career faculty workshop, and um, I got a follow-up email from one of the participants that said, you know, Vicki, this was wonderful. So appreciate it. I really walked away with appreciating that I don't need to be perfect that I just need to chart out what helps tell my story and my narrative and to craft that in a way that's compelling for others to read and understand. But I was so glad that she picked up on that because this isn't about perfection. This isn't about competing with somebody else. This isn't about having these unrealistic standards that we place on ourselves that if you look at a candidate, I mean, I've worked in coaching with many women and they're like, oh, I need this, 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 and this. And as part of my coaching, I always tell them, get me your handbook or the, the promotion language. So I have a grounding in that. So I keep that in mind while I'm helping you. And there's many times where the language in the handbook says one thing, but they have ascribed their own perception of what that means, their own interpretation. And it sets these unrealistic standards and expectations. And like, nobody told you, you had to do that. You don't need that to go up for full. This clearly says that's not necessary. I don't, where did you find that? And they're like, oh, I thought that's what I read. And we read into things, right? So it was really important. And again, uh, kudos to Margaret and her friendly review for highlighting that for me and just seeing it that we need to not compare ourselves to other people. We not we need to not perceive there to be these expectations that are informally written into what our documents say. And again, like the one chapter of the book and what I talk about is let the performance speak for itself. You craft Mm -hmm. that narrative and you connect it to the strategic imperatives of the institution. You use the language of the institution, the the college, the department, and use that to help frame what your value add is. It's really hard as as a promotion and tenure committee to argue with someone who can show you explicit examples of the ways in which they contribute to the institution using their own words well, you told me this was important to you, right? We These are our values. These are our strategic pillars. And I'm showing you all the ways in which I engage across these key areas that are necessary for promotion and tenure and advancement. Here's the ways I'm elevating those strategic imperatives. These are the ways that I'm living up to and, and contributing to those imperatives. That's 
that's where the focus is, not on these unrealistic expectations or measures of success. It's crafting that really strategic, thoughtful narrative that helps to highlight your value add at your institution, at your department and your program that aligns with the words and what your institution says it values. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think that was also a major um, theme that stood out to me is just that idea of knowing the rules of the game. And um, and honestly, I was surprised because I am imagining that that arose um, as, a as a necessary message because you encountered so many um, uh, associate professors who were unaware of, of kind of their, promo their specific promotion requirements and, and criteria. Was that, that seems surprising to me. Was that surprising to you in your work? It is a little bit. Um, but again, I make assumptions coming from my disciplinary lens. So I just have to um, own that as a management professor. I'm all about setting expectations. So I probably overly communicate like in the syllabus and what my expectations are with students. Number one, you got to do that with undergrads. <laughs> it yeah. just seems to be the nature and probably my mothering experience, as you know, with young kids, you have to overly communicate and repeat yourself multiple times. Um, but I definitely, that was another assumption I made. I'd sit down with people and we would work in small groups or one-on-one -on -one coaching. And I'd be like, okay, let's get started. And, and people would look at me and say, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what the process is. And I don't even know what the criteria are. And at first that I was a little taken aback, but then I heard it so much. I was like, wow, people really don't know what the process looks like. And so I felt it important to really spell that out in the book that here's the mm -hmm. various ways, but here's places at your institution that you should be looking. And if it's not there, then here's another avenue to pursue. But it's hard to to uh, develop those short and long term professional goals if you don't even know what the rules of the game are. Right. You, you, how do you play in that space? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you've got there's some fundamental knowledge that you have to start with that then helps you build from there. But instead of you fitting the mold of what they say is important, because most uh, promotion advancement criteria are pretty vague. It's enough to give you some direction, but it's not explicitly like you need 10 publications. I rarely see that. Mm -hmm. It happens, but rarely. So that's where the flexibility and the narrative comes into play, right? Like here's the meta themes or the meta areas mm -hmm. I need to engage in. But now I can take these meta areas and craft them based off of what I do and where my joy mm -hmm. is and where my passion is and to define them in my ways that then helps to highlight the performance and to highlight the areas in which you excel at your institution and in your discipline in your field and in the professional roles that you play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, it was interesting. So the idea of knowing the rules of the game connected kind of to that idea. Um, because I think when you talk about that throughout the book or when that's mentioned, it, it, it's, it was mentioned in terms of that there are sometimes that they're often women didn't know where to start to even start thinking about or gathering promotion materials. And that's, that was kind of one of the first places you would say to start is, is knowing that criteria. Um, so in addition to, to that, I think was also the importance of mentoring throughout this process. Um, and I, I know that there was, um, mention that, you know, some, some, women that you all worked with, it was like they hadn't even thought of it because it wasn't even mentioned from a department chair and then moving, you know, moving into some of those roles and, and, and just explicitly asking women, well, what are, what are your goals? Like, what, what do you want to do? Where do you want to be? What are you looking to achieve? Really kind of even just help them to start thinking about it. Um, 
So, and, and you mentioned that also, and your co-authors write this too, that many women don't receive mentoring from their institutions, but rather more that comes more through professional organizations. So one of the reasons I do love this book is because it fills that gap in mentoring in this area. Um, and so can you talk about that a little bit, the role of mentoring for mid-career women? Yeah, absolutely. It's important. And I have absolutely been a, been a, been a beneficiary of mentors throughout my career, but certainly at mid-career Uh, And my mentors have been mentors for a really long time. And so we have solid relationships where they know my weaknesses. They know my sticking points. They also know my strengths. And so when opportunities arise, whether it's at my institution or through the professional association or elsewhere, they're really good advocates where they'll reach out and say, hey, Vicki, this should be you doing this. So here's the detail. But um, you really, again, need to engage in that self-reflection and the assessment of what are my goals. And once you identify what those goals are, then you start looking at, well, what resources do I have currently and or do I need to pursue and achieve those goals? And that becomes really critical to start looking at, well, who do I have as a mentor and who can support me and what are their skill sets? And and you're going to find that one person alone isn't able to provide all the support and guidance that you need. And it really becomes critical to have a diversity of mentors, a developmental network of mentors that support you both personally and professionally. But you've got to go into those relationships, particularly if you're trying to foster new ones, that you reach out to that person and and be strategic with them, right? Like, hey, I'm really interested in becoming a dean in the next five years. And I see you as someone who has been successful in this role. And here's the ways in which I find you successful. And these are the areas in which I need to get more experience and or development. Would you be willing to sit down and talk with me, right? Like you're not just randomly cold calling somebody, but you need to be thoughtful about here's where I'm at and here's what I'm hoping to do. And here are the areas in which I need support. Here's why I'm reaching out to you because I think you can help me in some of these areas. Would you be willing to talk, right? It just shows you you're respecting your time, you're respecting their time, and you have already engaged in that thoughtful reflection and assessment of Mm -hmm. why this person and why now in your career and what does this relationship have the potential to help you achieve um, in fostering that relationship to begin with. So the book and especially Laura's chapter really provides some good guidance mm-hmm. on how to go about doing that. And that's also something. So Laura, one of the co-authors on, on the net on the mentoring chapter, she's also my co-founder of Lead Mentor Develop, which is our business that does higher ed consulting and the workshops and the academic leadership institute that we talked about. And she does a lot of mentoring networks and mentoring coaching as well to help individuals think thoughtfully about how do I craft that mentoring network and how do I leverage it and how do I be, um, how can you also be a a good mentee, right? This shouldn't be a Mm one-way street, that this should be mutually Mm -hmm. beneficial and and there's resources to help you be thoughtful as a mentee as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Great, great. Um, so, just if, I, I want to do a few final questions because we're kind of getting close on time. There's so much here. I wish we had, you know, more, much more time. But um, often we don't get a chance to share with others the stories about what really mattered, about what put us um, on the paths we are on today. So, can you share one piece of advice that you received that really impacted you? Oh my gosh, I have been, like I said, the beneficiary of so much. <laughs> you can, good you can pick something in your top five, maybe something <laughs> yeah. in your top five. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would tell you, honestly, I think it was my grandfather who was certainly one of my professional mentors. Um, he, you know, kind of groomed me to be ready to 
to be successful in a male dominated world, given my academic and professional interests. But obviously there's a, a world full of critics and people are more than happy to let you know uh, what you're not doing well. Um, and this obviously has been easier as you get more life experience. And again, you have the benefit and privilege of tenure and being in your forties and a parent because you just don't have the time to worry otherwise. But um, there's always going to be criticism and there's always going to be doubts about you and your ability. And my grandfather was always really good about uh, who's the source of that feedback. And he goes, is it somebody that you respect? And if you're getting that feedback from somebody that you don't respect, he's like, why are you wasting your time on it? Now, if the source sharing that advice with you is somebody's opinion, somebody that you value and that you respect, eh, maybe it's worth your time really thinking about that and, and to see if, if what they're telling you is true or the ways in which what they're telling you is accurate and, and how you might be able to respond to it, both in, in actions and just in conversation. But it's always a good gut check because I will catch myself, right? If, if I read a student comment that I'm like, ah, that burned me or I, that's not even accurate, but that was their perception or just a, a colleague saying something passive aggressive in a meeting. And of course it gets to you, but I'm able to step away now and say, is that comment coming from somebody who I value and I respect? And if that's not the case or, you know, or somebody that has my best interests at heart, if I can't say those things about the source of the feedback, then I've gotten much better in my career of walking away from that feedback and, and not dwelling on it. So I would say that's a valuable piece of advice I have gotten in my career in my lifetime. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. Um, well, Vicki, um, it's been great talking with you today. One final question before we wrap up. Um, can you tell us um, about what you're working on now? Maybe a project that you're working on now? Yeah, absolutely. It really is. I had just briefly mentioned it really expanding on the work that we're doing through Lead, Mentor, and Develop with my colleague, Laura Lunsford. Now with this book being out and it's opening up doors for other engagements with um with institutions and more one-on-one -on -one coaching. And, and so I'm also in thinking about kind of creating more of a handbook, uh, taking even more how-tos and, and some feedback from workshops and trying to compile that in something. So that's at least in the initial stages, but really thinking thoughtfully about how can we take this work and really benefit other people. So um, I'm really proud of the direction we're going with Lead, Mentor, and Develop and excited with uh, some of the offerings that we'll be able to start um, sharing with folks in 2021. So definitely check that out. Oh, we will. We will. Thank you so much. You're doing um, really wonderful work. Um, Vicki, thank you for being on the show today and for talking with us about your new book, Charting Your Path to Full, A Guide for Women Associate Professor Professors. That's through Rutgers University Press. Thank you so much, Dana. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to the New Books Network. Please join us again.